Hello, friends, and welcome to the latest edition of The Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, and in this episode, I am very excited to be interviewing Professor Mark Bellamar. Professor Bellamar leads the reinforcement learning efforts at Google Brain Montreal and is also a core industry member at Myla, where he holds the Canada CIFAR AI chair. His PhD work, completed at the University of Alberta, proposed the use of Atari 2600 video games to benchmark progress in reinforcement learning. He was a research scientist at DeepMind from 2013 to 2017, and his arcade learning environment was very influential in DeepMind's early RL research and remains one of the most widely used RL benchmarks today. More recently, he collaborated with Loon to deploy deep reinforcement learning to navigate stratospheric balloons. His book on distributional reinforcement learning published by MIT Press, will be available in spring 2023. I was really floored by this conversation and by Professor Bellamar's ability to tell very interesting stories, but also to explain complex ideas with such clarity. He was kind enough to bear with me as I asked some fairly technical questions that probably might have been better with some video. I'll be making sure to include a couple of images along with the podcast so that you can follow along, assuming you're not listening to this driving in the car. In short, I found this conversation very enlightening, and it was an incredible honor to speak to somebody who has been so influential in the field of reinforcement learning. As always, if you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, Go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. And now, without further ado, Mark Bellamar. Professor Bellamar, I believe you're probably one of the most influential minds in the reinforcement learning space right now. And I just want to start, as always, with how you got into AI and, I guess, reinforcement learning in the first place. Yeah, so I I actually grew up in a household where we didn't have TVs, but we had a lot of computers. And so I actually got programming quite early on. I think I was programming by age three. And, you know, this was the, this was the, the late 80s. And Pretty early on, I read about AI. I got very excited about AI. At this time, it was it was fuzzy logic and expert systems. And I couldn't really tell you what really got me excited other than maybe I wanted to program things that were more and more intelligent, right? And I really saw the limitations of what you could do if you had to script by hand this behavior, right? I would write these little RPGs in which they, or, you know, even just little scripts where the characters would have adventures. And it was really hard to get anything interesting out of it. Um, so I think when I read about AI, I thought, this is how we're going to do this. We're going to have AI uh, create more interesting characters for our computer games. And there's even, and unfortunately, I can't find it anymore, but there's even a, a web page that I had on my Geocities website 
that very naively try to explain to the world at 12 years old, this is what AI really is about. Uh, it turns out, you know, it's not too far from what RL looks like, which is maybe why when, when I finally started my undergrad degree in computer science, I was really lucky that uh, at McGill University, we had a strong AI group, actually a strong reinforcement learning group. So I didn't, I took multiple classes, uh, starting with uh, Doina Prekop, who became a master's thesis advisor. And, and she really introduced me to reinforcement learning proper and saying, no, well, you know, you might have read some things about AI, but this is what AI actually is about today. And that was even more exciting for me because it, RL really said, you can devise these systems where your agent will try things out. And if it's successful, we'll know about it and then we'll learn to repeat these things. And my very first project was actually re-implementing the work of Jerry Tesoro on having a backgammon player that could learn from trial and error to play backgammon. This was during a, an undergraduate summer research project. And I knew I wanted to do RL the day that after training my backgammon agent for maybe a week or so, I played against it. So I built a UI to play against a backgammon agent and it beat me. And then I thought, well, if this thing can beat me after one week, what can't we do if we're willing to spend enough research to get these, these learning agents uh, going? So, so that's a story, I think, of how I got into AI. Yeah, it seems, as you were saying from the beginning, there are influences, I suppose, on Miguel, as you said, having a very strong RL program, that this was kind of going to be the area for you. Yeah, uh, certainly I learned about machine learning in, in undergrad and then during my master's, but because there were so many researchers working in reinforcement learning. So Dorina Prekop is one of them. Joel Pinot had just started when I started as well and had uh, this, this beautiful research program uh, about applying reinforcement learning and sequential decision-making to the problem of, uh, to health problems, basically robotics and health. And then we also had a few other collaborators that came in around that time. Shyman was at McGill for, for a little while. And so there was this real sense, it was a very different perspective in some sense, even though I didn't completely realize this at the time, it was a very different perspective from, from the sort of classic machine learning perspective of all you're given is bags of inputs and outputs, right? Our starting point is you have an agent interacting in an environment and this agent is sort of free to do whatever it wants. So I think that resonated really well with, with my prior experience as a programmer and as sort of like an amateur game programmer, that this is how I was used to think about programming. Well, now we can do this with AI. And, you know, at the time, um, I was at McGill University, but of course, just across the mountain in Montreal, there was University of Montreal where Yashro Benjo was, and, and they were developing neural networks. And so beyond just the RL part, there was already the synergy that we see that's so strong today in deep reinforcement learning. We could take neural networks. In fact, you know, Jerry Tesoro's work on Bagaman did this. We could take neural networks and use them to get better performance out of our RL agents in a way that wasn't really possible elsewhere. What you just mentioned actually is a really interesting historical artifact to me. I wonder if there's anything to that cross-pollination of ideas just having to do with the geography of what you mentioned. So we have one institution that is very strong in reinforcement learning. Another where you have Yashua Benjo, one of the leading minds in, in deep learning. And so I'm just curious what that picture looks like to you. And if you think about that kind of institutional cross-pollination. For sure. And, and I think to your point, the value of having multiple institutions that are sufficiently diverse is that I think you see 
different solutions emerge to what are fundamentally the same questions, right? So if you're focusing on deep learning in early 2000s, you're really focusing on the uh, the prediction part, right? I get some inputs out, but then I have to map them in a very nonlinear fashion into the right outputs. And we're focusing on a completely different problem, which is how do you take these same inputs and turn them into decisions? And even though these were quite, in some sense, disjoint at the time, they certainly influenced each other in, in the way of thinking of approaching the world. And so we had this recurrent meeting uh, that happened about once a month where we'd actually exchange ideas. And every time, you know, I'm, I'm a starting researcher at a time, and uh, the hardest thing when you're starting research is nothing makes sense, right? Um, you, you're hearing all these great talks, and everybody's very articulate. Nothing makes sense to you, and you have to pretend that you know what you're talking about. But in hindsight, I think a lot of the, the commonalities that we see today in DeepRL were already present. So this idea that representations and how we come to, to map uh, sort of the raw inputs of the world into a structured understanding of the world, that was present in both camps, right? If you're doing RL, you need to understand how you take, a, take in a game of Go, which is so complex, and then make a decision. If you're classifying MNIST digits, you have to do the same thing, but for digits, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I can definitely see how, as you said, it's it's really fundamentally the same problem. And so naturally, there's going to have to be some exchange of ideas. So after this undergrad time period, and I suppose your master's, you ended up doing your PhD. And out of that came the arcade learning environment, which was very influential on a lot of DeepMind in particular, but I think RL more broadly some of the advances we saw there. Could you tell me a little bit about your process of developing this environment, what the the motivations were for you and what that experience was like? For sure. So it's so the story actually starts even before me. There was, so from a PhD, I went to the University of Alberta uh, in Western Canada. And uh, for a while, I was actually working on what we would call today continual learning on with robots with uh, Richard Sutton. But eventually eventually made my way to work with Michael Bowling on the ALE. So what happened in between is that there was this meeting in Barbados every year where some of the best minds in reinforcement learning would meet up. So Rich Rich Sutton was one of them and Dorina was one of them and Michael Bowling would go. And they would get together in Barbados, which is not the worst place in the world to be in April, especially for Canadian. And it would be this, to this day, you know, this phenomenal scientific workshop where all the ideas could be put on a table and he had the best minds in the world to try to crack these ideas. So actually what happened is this somebody uh, at one of these workshops came in and said, we've been working on these really toy problems in reinforcement learning. But instead what I've done is I've taken this, this Atari emulator and I've, I, I'm going to show to you that we can play Atari games. Now their demo, this is Carlos Duke, their demo was actually quite minimal. It was one screen of the game Pitfall, so like a tiny, tiny portion of an Atari game. But Michael Bowling, who then became a PhD advisor, this was, was sitting, sitting at the bar one night, uh, says, look, what we should do, what we've been missing in reinforcement learning is much larger environments, challenge domains, things we can really look at. We don't know how to solve them, but we know that if we could solve them, we would have made a real advance scientifically. And so he, he said, we should have one single RL agent that can play all Atari games. Okay. And so this was, this was the spark. And it's actually 2008. So between 2008, where the idea was proposed, and 2013, where we actually put out the paper, there was quite a gap. But in some sense, that gap was necessary just to sort of let the idea mature and maybe let compute catch up. 
And so I came in in 2011, and my role was to take that idea. Some work had been done already, but my role was to basically take that idea and put it into a proper RL framework, if that makes sense. And so saying, with my experience that I had in reinforcement learning, how do we turn this into the right kind of RL environment? What kind of API will people want? How do we think about some design choices, such as, you know, how frequently do we make decisions? How do we present the image to, to researchers? So very simple heuristics to, to get people off the ground. And so the output of that was the arcade learning environment in 2013. And in that sense, it was so different because, just to give context, at the time in 2012, 2011, uh, this is, you know, just when the deep learning revolution is starting, in reinforcement learning, there's really two kinds of projects going on. There's these fairly fairly precise or applied projects where you might have access to a robot or, for example, uh, Andrew and Peter Beal worked on helicopter control, right? And you might have access to these beautiful giant helicopters, but nobody else has access to them. And so getting fantastic results out of RL applied to helicopter flight, but nobody else is doing this. And we also had a lot of small domains. If you're familiar with a mountain car or cart pole, these are low dimensional domains that were designed in the mid 90s or even in the 80s. And there's, so there was this real gap that the ALE filled by saying, here's a very different kind of domain that is much richer than anything else we've seen before. To the point where some of my colleagues came to me after my PhD and said, we reviewed your papers, but we can't we can't reject your papers. Your papers are reviewer killers because playing Atari games is something we've never seen before. Like it doesn't matter if the science is good or not. And that, you know, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but this is so f- important. We need to accept your papers. Yeah, and as we kind of commented earlier, this had an incredible impact, and it seems that it continues to do so. I believe even papers as recently as 2017, 2018, some of your own on distributional reinforcement learning, which we'll talk about, there's specific challenges in the arcade learning environment that it seems we're still grappling with. Can you tell me anything about how the environment was sort of received by the community and then the challenges, or perhaps the way it's structured, the way that the community has dealt with some of the challenges it presented over time? Sure. So maybe to give some context here. So the way that the ALI is structured is that it's it's a reinforcement learning interface to effectively to any Atari game you might want to play, although there's some work that needs to be done to integrate new games. Today, there's about 110 games that are available through the ALE. At the time when we published our first paper, it was about 55. And the key principles for why the ALE is interesting, I think, sort of play exactly the reason why the ALE has been so successful. Well, on one hand, Atari games are very... uh, very perceptually interesting, right? When a human looks at them, this is a fun thing to look at. They're interesting games for humans, and humans like to know that, okay, this is, a, this is a, an AI agent that can play Space Invaders or Breakout. Uh, so, so, you know, these games are interesting. They're also varied, and compared to many other benchmarks, this is something we get for free because so much work went on in the 70s and the 80s to design these games that now we have this whole benchmark that gives us these domains for free. Now, other platforms have the same, have the same uh, both interesting, let's say, and, and diverse qualities. The real killer with the ALE is also that these games, because they were designed in the 70s by people who were not thinking about AI, they're, they're what we call independently designed or effectively free of researcher bias, which is you get what you're given. And in many ways, this was my main contribution to the ALE is making sure 
that what we delivered as a benchmark was also free researcher bias. So what do I mean by this? Well, if you're trying to make a point in a research paper and you want to, say, use the game of Pong, you're going to keep Pong as simple as possible, basically design the environment to make your point. And this is a very classic trope that we see in machine learning and research. This is just, just a fact of science. Mm. But with the ALE, what we said is we will define a set of rules that are pretty much agnostic to the game. And then when we implement that interface, those are the rules. We're not changing the rules of the game. And so we sort of inherit all the weird eccentricities that the Atari game designers baked into the game. And I'll give you an example in a second. The most important rule is that while we take the emulation data as is, we don't change the emulation. And the reward, so what the agent is trying to optimize, the reward is just the score differential. So as long as this agent is optimizing for score, that's all we care about. And so the kind of weird things you get is you might have very complex dynamics, even in a simple game. So in Pong, you know, Pong the, the, is not actually the classic Atari joystick that you use to control the, the paddle, but instead it's a different, uh, different device that's also called a paddle, which is effectively a resistor. So, you know, your input at the beginning is a resistor. And to deal with the fact that it's a physical resistor, the Atari emulator uh, ends up integrating. Okay, this is a very long explanation just to say that the dynamics of a game as simple as Pong actually surprisingly complicated under the hood. What that means is when you're dealing with this as an RL system, you get way more complexity than you would than you than you think in getting. And this is what makes these games so interesting in some sense that there's a there's a depth that I think on one hand they're obvious to understand, on the other hand they really match a little bit more reality, that in a sense that they're they're somewhat complicated under the hood. And now with this diversity of games, to your point about it remains a challenge today. What we saw is that the some of the games were easy to solve. And we could move on from these games, but then there were there were games that were designed, for example, later in the, the life cycle of the Atari, like Montezuma's Revenge, that were much more challenging for classic RL methods. And we saw that the, our agents were lagging behind for a very long time, couldn't play these games at all, right? And it's only recently we've had, no, now maybe four or five years that we've had success with these games. Yeah, yeah. It, I guess it's, it's a really interesting sort of co-evolution we always see going on with benchmarks and then the methods in a specific area. And so I guess as the suite of benchmark tools, so you mentioned Montezuma's Revenge, and I know that's called out in a number of papers as presenting a very difficult set of challenges. So as that set of things kind of evolves, it's like, well, now we have to figure out new techniques, new ideas to deal with. And I suppose that's evolved into some of what you've done with distributional RL. And then, of course, we'll talk later about intrinsic motivation, which, you know, has been applied in that particular case as well. Yes, exactly. So I suppose you're wondering here now, how has the ALE translated into new technological advances? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So maybe if we go back for a second to the the uh, like from the get go why was the ALE why did the ALE move the field forward well it posed a challenge which other domains didn't which was perceptual which meant that we had to take in the image and then map that image to an action and this is really where a method like DQN deep Q networks comes in and deep learning really shines because it sounds so obvious in hindsight but we didn't know how to do this at the time we didn't know how to take in images and output actions so that's sort of the base level here now. But as you're saying, as we've as we dug deeper into the benchmark, we realized that for some games we needed to to incentivize the agent to try out new things. In the context of distributional reinforcement learning specifically, 
the insight was that any sufficiently complicated system will have, a, 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 if you will, intrinsic part of randomness that you can model, but you can't get rid of. Okay, so even though it looks like when we're operating in our daily lives, things are pretty deterministic and we don't make too many mistakes, there's actually a lot of things that we don't have under our control and we just deal with them, right? And so what distributional reinforcement learning does is it starts from the premise that we should learn to predict the distribution of outcomes. Instead of classic reinforcement learning would predict just the average reward, the mean return that we receive. With distributional level, we're going to predict the distribution of these returns. So we're going to say, if I try to hit the ball, I'm playing pong, and I try to hit the ball this way, maybe I'll receive a point. Maybe I'll lose a point, and maybe I'll, I'll nothing will happen. We'll keep playing for a while, and let's model this distribution. And so, actually, at face value, it seems like you should need to do this to get anything out of the system because the classic law in RL is that you maximize expected value, so predicting expected value should be good enough. But because there's this intrinsic randomness, that fundamentally every system that's complicated enough will be random to some degree, by predicting this randomness, by learning to predict the distribution of outcomes, we learn something about the system that we can then feed back to the agent, and that the agent knows about something more about the world that it can make better decisions with. And so that's maybe a bit of a subtle point, but it was one of the things we were able to do with the ALE that I think we couldn't have done with or would not have been as interesting with simpler systems. Yeah, I, I think I see what you're getting at here. So it's like almost this idea of what's the kind of substrate, what are the key things that need to be involved, modeled, understood for a system to really capture and understand this. And there is actually... A more recent benchmark I did want to get your thoughts on just because I think that it's presenting some similar ideas here. And I recently spoke to some of the authors on this paper. This was the Avalon benchmark. And I think by the time that this interview comes out, my interview with them will probably be available as well for listeners. But essentially, I think they are trying to get at the same problem of generalization and RL through presenting these procedurally generated worlds in which some system that is embodied in a simulated environment is asked to get food or do a range of things. And the kind of argument is, well, there is this shared substrate of you need to learn how to navigate, how to pick up things in order to complete the tasks and actually survive in the environment. And I wonder how you think about a benchmark like this, if we are kind of jumping forward to today in terms of the existing challenges that RL needs to solve and ways that benchmarks can really help us tease those out. Yeah. So I think that's actually, I, I love this idea of creating these open-ended procedural words, worlds that we can launch our agents in and see how they do. Actually, let's separate the two. So there's this idea that the world is open-ended and I guess there's also the idea that it's procedurally generated. The advantage of doing procedural generation, and we've seen this uh, in a number of ways, in fact, it's a kind of data augmentation process, is that if we do it well and we get success, you know, our agents can actually play in these random words. We know they're doing something right, right? They're, we know they're generalizing the way we want them to generalize. And in some sense, it even makes the problem easier because if we if we want to to train a new agent on something, then we train it on all the things, and then we know that it's going to do well on the new, on the new domain. And so I really like this approach. And I love this idea of an open-ended world to play in, you know, basically as a sandbox. And in many ways, this is really core to, to my research philosophy, where 
I want to build agents that understand their world and engage in play with their environment and through play come to have a very rich understanding of what the world is about, right? Uh, I'm in a meeting room right now. I have a clear sense of what's outside the meeting room. What would happen if I was to leave the meeting room? I know where I can get coffee. All of this rich structure is clearly in my mind and I know about it. And and it's not, well, for many of these things, it's not like I've needed to use the structure yet, but it's available for the moment where I would need to use it. I can, in some sense, if you will, tap into that knowledge. And so open-ended worlds are great for this because there's an infinite source of knowledge and theory that we could learn about, right? And I love the idea of building in an objective like survival. It's a very natural thing. You know, clearly this is what animals and plants do in the world. And so it makes sense to tie this to, to you know, we believe intelligence is there for survival. So I really like this approach. I think one challenge when you design a video game, coming back to DALE, is how do you avoid making the researcher bias? So how do we make sure it's already computationally expensive to run something like an Atari game? How do we make sure that we're choosing the right challenges? For example, is perception an important part of the question? And I don't have an answer for this, right? Like, do we need to, to build learning agents? And always from now on, since 2013, we need to involve perception in what we do. Yeah, that was that was definitely one particular thought I had in mind, especially with Avalon, because it does seem to come from the mindset of, okay, we have a research challenge. And so you've got researchers who are designing this, whereas in ALE, one of the very important things you pointed out was the independent design of what's going on there. And so I can see how that bit of researcher bias you're you're mentioning might sort of sneak in here and perhaps in terms of what the environment is actually measuring, maybe there are some preconceived notions of, of what that should be instead of here is something that is sort of challenging for humans to do or something that just presents a plain challenge. Let's now more or less turn this into something in a reinforcement learning formalism that we can then begin attacking with the suite of tools that we have available. Exactly. So in some sense, in an ideal world, we would want to straight up tackle the problems that we want reinforcement to solve eventually. So, you know, we, we did some work with Loon a few years ago, and, and I love working with Loon on developing DeepRL to navigate their stratospheric balloons, exactly because this was, if we can fly these things, there's a real value here. There's an immediate demonstration that this was a useful piece of technology. In some sense, we didn't really need to develop a lot of new technology to get this done. So now the interesting question is, what, what is the new RL technology that we still need? And clearly, we don't know how to design an Avalon AI. So, so there's a gap. And that's a very surprising phenomenon in some sense, that we can, we're so good at some things and still so bad at other things. Yeah. There's another set of thoughts more broad than these specific benchmarks I want to get your opinion on. And this is the whole idea of reward is enough. So... Probably some people that you worked with while you were at DeepMind seem to hold this very strong view that reinforcement learning is more or less the way to get us to these broader goals of general intelligence, if you believe in that as a phrase. I know some people don't even like the term, but often I, I recall hearing Demis Asabis say in many cases, there's this proof of existence that RL is sort of the thing we need to be doing to get to human level intelligence. And so I wanted to get your, your take on that debate. I think it's a fascinating debate. 
because clearly reinforcement learning as a mathematical formalism is a, a pretty ubiquitous framework, right? Like it, it, in some sense, people, people might say, well, you can always express the entirety of the universe as the state of a Markov decision process and sort of roll from there and sort of like, okay, what are the consequences of this? Now, so in that sense, I think if we ask the question, as it's done in a paper, is reward enough? I think from an observational perspective, it is in the sense that we can say, well, a little bit like subjective utility theory, right? Like any behavior can be explained by a reward function. So if I observe an intelligent agent, I could say this agent is maximizing this kind of reward. I think the challenge is whether it's a mechanistic one, which is, is this the right way? Is this the most efficient way or even an efficient way? to do things, right? The same way that we don't want to model the state of the universe. We don't think, you know, the squirrels outside my window right now are not modeling the state of the universe, unless you're in a Douglas Adams type of, type of situation, right? But so there's, so th- that's, a, that's a challenging question. And then if we think about what is reward in this context, well, reward is something that you give to the agent and it has to learn and discover. And we know, for example, that evolution bakes in a lot of behaviors that don't have to be learned. You know, many animals start walking almost immediately after they're born. This, this seems unlikely that this is happening in a purely agnostic reinforcement framework. Okay? And so I suppose at that point we have to ask, well, what's the boundary, right? How much do we allow to bake in into the system before we declare that this was not just reward and there was something more, another ingredient? So in many ways, I'm very much a pragmatist. If you have an agent that lives in an environment and it's, it does its thing, that's what we're really trying to build. We're trying to build agents that are intelligent. I don't think any agent will just be a learning function, right? It's going to have a body. It's going to have an environment. It's going to have maybe friends. So what is a part of reward here? Suddenly, suddenly I don't know where how reward can be enough, if that makes sense. But clearly, mathematically, it can be. Yeah, I think the key thing to index on and what you just said has to do with efficiency. And I think that blends a lot of a lot of things together because it does seem clear that in many empirical cases we've seen, while reinforcement learning is really powerful, it certainly isn't the most efficient way to go about things. So I remember there was this paper with, I believe, Bean Kim, Dennis Asabis, who kind of studied the learning evolution of the Alpha Zero agent. And that thing became incredibly powerful after many compute hours of training, but they found that it kind of went through this really interesting evolution where it was like rediscovering some human concepts of how to play chess. So things like castling or perhaps particular pawn structures, or like I need to take control of these parts of the board in certain situations. And there is something about the capacity to discover these ideas through self-play, but for a human, something we would recognize as intelligent, you're kind of just able to like listen to somebody explain it to you, right? And there's more of like a a hop to kind of understanding there. It's it's certainly more complicated than I'm saying in that last sentence, but there is this difference. And I think that another kind of connection that comes in here is the idea of of priors, right? And maybe not very specific priors, but things like meta learning priors, if we're to think about things that just kind of help us learn. And so um, when you sort of think about the the broad reinforcement learning challenge, do you explicitly think about this kind of overlap of how important are our priors to the efficiency of the learning process? 
Totally. One of the one of the research directions that I've been very excited about in the last few years is is what we're calling reincarnating reinforcement learning. It's a very simple idea. You know, the classic way that we evaluate agents, even on Atari, for example, is we train them from scratch because that's the paradigm in which you you want to define a general purpose agent that, given any reward function, then you know goes out in the world, as you said, and rediscovers all the things. And this makes sense from a, almost like a a pure scientific or pure curiosity question. We should work on this kind of question. But as soon as you have to actually build this agent and maintain this agent, you know, like we're thinking about software architectures here, you don't want to retrain the agent from scratch, right? When we had, when we designed controllers for Loon, it took 40 days of training, real days. And, and you know, this is with, with good, a good amount of compute to get this controller. Well, the last thing we want to do is if we come up with a new idea, have to go through this 40 days again. This is a massive slowdown. So then the question is, how do you take this learned agent and distill its knowledge into the next agent? How do we generally just reuse the entire computation? Now, this is a very specific kind of prior. There's other kinds of priors we could bring. You know, we, we know how the laws of physics work. We know, or we know mostly how the laws of physics work, or, or we, we believe that Asimov's three laws of robotics in some sense are, are a kind of prior. I think these are good. But to me, the best kind of priors are the ones that are coming from data or the learning process because we can make them flush very easily. You know, we have done the learning. We know about this. That's already a start. That's a direction I'd love to see us go in more because in an ideal world, I think we should never learn again from scratch. And this would really allow us to build much more powerful agents on one hand, much more intelligent agents, and also be much more efficient, right? And basically more energy efficient, more compute efficient, and and more broadly share our knowledge as a research community. Yeah, this sort of teacher-student framework knowledge distillation certainly seems to cohere with some of the ways that, that we humans kind of imbibe knowledge from others. Exactly. Well, I think you see this in, in exactly as you're saying that we underestimate, I think, as humans, how little we would accomplish if we if it was not for our the entire society around us and all the learnings we glean from our peers and friends and parents and, and siblings. Yeah, I think I think that certainly coheres with the ways I've started to think about like intelligence and, and even genius after a while and that it's not necessarily just an individual achievement. It's really the collection of, as you said, the history of a society where one was brought up, the people around a person, that that all seems really, really vitally important. I'd love to dive into some detail on distributional reinforcement learning. So you presented some initial ideas in this wonderful paper, a distributional perspective on reinforcement learning. You've now got a book in the works. And as you presented earlier, this is really more about estimating distributions of reward that could potentially be really useful in certain situations. Where I'd like to rest first is that it seems like we've now transposed this problem of instead of I'm estimating an expected value and kind of coming from maybe a basic RL or a basic ML framework, that's often just getting a lot of samples and sort of taking an average and you have these sort of theoretical guarantees that come with things like the central limit theorem. 
we now have this problem of distribution estimation that I think is a difficulty of its own that you could possibly even isolate a bit from the RL issues. And I'd love for you to maybe introduce some of the ways you have tackled this. Yeah, so so I guess this is a fairly technical question. How do we learn distributions? Actually, the, the first and foremost challenge when we talk about learning distributions, and let's keep things simple even and just say we want to learn distributions over the real line so that we're not worried about uh, multidimensional objects. This matters to me because in reinforcement learning, what we end up doing is we have the sum of future rewards and we sum these up, we call this the return, and then it's that distribution of the returns that we want to estimate. And right away, the problem is that probability distributions mathematically are fundamentally infinite objects, infinite dimensional. So no matter how much memory you have, you won't be able to represent an arbitrary probability distribution. If you zoom back 20 years ago, people would say, no problem, we'll approximate things with a Gaussian distribution with two numbers. And you can imagine this is incredibly reductive, you know, no, no, no offense to the folks who did this, but this is incredibly reductive compared to the richness of the actual world. And this is actually something we found in our experimental work is when we even just did this on Atari, often we would see multimodal distribution reflecting that, you know, if I go left here, I'll get a certain kind of payout. And if I go right, I'll get a different kind of payout. And, and, you know, the, the shape of the distribution is quite complex. We see this with, you know, when we flew these balloons with, with Luna also. It just shows up everywhere. Every, everywhere we look, we find complex distributions. One challenge we've had to overcome is how do we approximate these, these distributions in a way that is agnostic to the problem at hand? And so in the book, we actually spend a few chapters describing a few of the approaches we've put in place. And to me, this is a very exciting area of research that... Early on, our work was inspired actually by generative modeling because um, models like Pixel CNN had to do the same kind of process where they would model pixel values, not as a Gaussian distribution, but as a, as a, as a categorical distribution. Right. We realized early on that while you can do this with distributional RL, there's actually a whole gamut of algorithms that you could use to estimate distributions, and it's an entire field. What's maybe surprising is that while the algorithms that are involved are a bit more complicated than, say, estimating a Gaussian distribution, in terms of statistical efficiency, they're not actually that different. And so we, we, we don't have a clear sense today uh, or, or, you know, a simple way to explain why this is. But even when we look at things from a very mathematical perspective, we find that there are complexity bounds that tell us how many samples we need that are not so different from what we would need to estimate the mean of a distribution. So it's pretty surprising. But in fact, in fact, it's not that much more difficult and exactly where that's going to take us, I think it's still an open question. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I guess when you're thinking about that problem, so you first mentioned we can be incredibly reductive and just assume that we're doing the Gaussian and now we just have to estimate a mean and a variance slash standard deviation. You can go about it in that way, but then maybe you can break it down, look at categorical distributions. I recall some of your early approaches were looking at fixed support, and then you kind of reverse that into quantile regression. And so there's there's some kind of design choices going on. Can you maybe just open up that box and give a little bit more detail about how you were thinking about this? For sure, for sure. So let me try to break down the steps of estimating a distribution. And in fact, let me, let me describe first just for a single distribution, and then let's take this to the reinforced learning setting, which is a bit more uh, involved. So... Let's make the simplifying assumption that our probability distribution is bounded. So in the sense that we know that any outcome we're going to draw from the distribution is between A and B. That makes things 
way easier. And in reinforcement learning, normally we can do this because we know the range of scores or the range of rewards we're going to get. So if we know this, as you're saying, well, one thing we can do is we can divide up the support of our distribution into uniform intervals and effectively assign a probability to values at equally spaced intervals. This is what we call the categorical representation. Now, the challenge when we do this is that what if your distribution doesn't actually lie in the support? You get a sample that doesn't lie in that support. Well, how do you then approximate the distribution based on the samples you're getting? So what we've developed is what we call a projection, where, uh, you know, in a nutshell, you take a sample and then you try to find a way to, to get the best fit for your distribution in the categorical representation space based on that sample. Um, so that's one way to do it. The other approach that you mentioned, the quantile representation approach, is sort of the transpose of the categorical approach. So categorical, we fix the support and then we learn the probabilities. And with the quantile approach, we fix the probabilities. So we're assigning uniform probabilities to each of these possible outcomes, right? So if there's, I'm going to say there's 50 possible different outcomes that I'm going to represent. And they all have equally likely probability, but then I'll move, I'll move where these outcomes lie on the real line to get the granularity that I need. And I wish I had a picture to show you of this, but effectively with a categorical approach, what you end up with is a histogram. I have uniformly spaced events and I'm assigning probability to each of these. With a quantile, I'm just basically trying to fit the shape of the distribution. If there's more density, then I'm going to have more crowded quantiles in one space. If it's less dense, I'll have less crowded quantiles. And so I'm getting more of a, the density of these objects is actually what, what drives the, the distribution. This is actually not the end, but essentially there's other more wild ways in which you can do this kind of a distribution estimation where you might choose to first extract some statistics from the distribution. Uh, and I appreciate this, we're getting quite in the weeds now, but and then and then try to rehydrate the distribution later as a best guess. You know, what did the what was the distribution given these statistics? We haven't done as much work in that space, but it's very promising in the sense that it's in theory a very general framework that could allow you to have a lot of flexibility in how you design algorithms. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of different challenges that have to be attacked here. And so you were mentioning like Pixel CNN earlier. I know that I believe like Joshua Benjir's lab is also kind of thinking about these distribution estimation questions. I am curious if there's any been any sort of cross-pollination with some of the work that he's done in terms of, of your attacks on this. Uh, so Joshua and I have talked a number of times about the relationship between uh, what he calls GFlow nets yeah. and distributional reinforcement learning. And yes, I think there's actually a close relationship, although that model is surprisingly different from classic uh, reinforcement approaches without getting too deep in the, the, the technical weeds. With distributional RL, our emphasis has been on given a distribution of outcomes at the next state, how do I how do I bring this back into my current state? How do I do an update, right? This is the, so the, the core of reinforcement learning is to what Richard calls learning a guess from a guess. Given my guess at my next step, how do I back this up? And so there's, there's in some sense, there's a certain arrow of time where the next state has a good, you know, is clearly identified and the previous state is clearly identified. With GFlowNet, the relationship is more symmetric in the sense that they're, the, they're attempting to make two distributions match. And yes, there's a relationship, there's an edge between these two distributions, but it's less temporal, if that makes sense. I see. Another, I think, aspect of all this that I wanted to dig into a bit is 
I think as it appears everywhere in deep learning these days, there was a pretty clear theory practice gap that you were encountering, especially in some of the initial follow-up papers after, I believe, the C51 algorithm, for instance, where you're like, okay, these things seem to work really well, but but why? And I think as we were kind of, as you were sort of co-developing the theory along with actually the algorithms, we sort of moved from the Spellman optimality equation to now a distributional optimality equation. And we have to think about all these things like contraction results, but then now you're comparing distributions. And so you have to figure out what's the right metric for distributions. Maybe starting from the beginning for somebody who's not quite as familiar with RL, could we maybe start with why is contraction an important thing in terms of the theory of RL? And then can we talk about how that played into some of the early development of, of distributional RL and this theory practice gap? For sure. So as I was mentioning, the fundamental approach to learning in reinforcement learning, specifically when we're learning value functions. So the value function will be the my prediction about the expected future return. How much reward do I think I'm going to get? And although we could estimate this in what we call a Monte Carlo sampling approach, where I just draw samples from my distribution and then average them out, and that would be my estimate. That's really, really inefficient, right? So like the example I'm going to give is, imagine you're playing, imagine you're playing a game of Go or a game of chess, and to find out if the move you're about to play is a good one, you play the move and then do what we call rollouts, right? So you, you play out in your head millions of games. Well, before you get a good estimate of the value of this move, it's going to be quite expensive. So what you would rather do is to play that move, look at the the resulting position, and if you know how good that position is, then decide that the move that you did was good on the basis of the resulting position. That's basically how RL works, right? So in RL, we have, with the Bellman equation, we say that the value of the state currently decomposes into the immediate reward and the value of the state, the next state, possibly discounted. So... This is a fundamental relationship between, in, in terms of expected return. And it turns out we can use that relationship to learn. So the way we do it is given, given a prediction about the value of the next state, I'm going to now update my value of the current state with that prediction. Where does contraction mappings com- come in here? Well, the fundamental principle is that as you repeat this process of backing up the future values, you will come closer and closer to the true prediction. And mathematically, what we mean by this is that we are coming closer at a certain rate, which is uh, exponential as a function of the discount factor. So that if I was at one unit away of distance from the value function before, the true value function before, after the update, I'm going to be at effectively gamma units away where gamma is a discount factor. In a distributional RL context, now things get a lot more hairy because To put things in context, if we just talk about expected returns, what we normally do is we have one prediction per state. And when we say close, we really mean we take the maximum distance between all pairs of states, uh, sorry, all states between two value functions, say, and we find the maximum one, and that's our distance. But that works because we can take two predictions, scalar predictions, and subtract them and measure their distance. Like, basically, it's the difference between those those two predictions. If we're dealing with distributions, right, if I ask you, is a distribution A bigger than distribution B, that statement is sort of a nonsense. There's no part, there's no full ordering on distributions, which means we can't really just line up all the distributions and decide which ones are closer and further away without 
being more sophisticated. And that's where this concept of probability metrics come in, where probability metrics are ways of measuring dis different distances between distributions. The reason why it matters in distributional reinforcement learning is because depending on how you measure distances, we can perform the same Bellman backup operation in distributions. But now, depending on how we measure things, we'll see things get closer together or not close together at all. So that's roughly the theory of contraction mappings for distributional reinforcement learning. Right. And it's certainly trickier here, I suppose, because if we start with some of the very basics, people might be familiar with notions like KL divergence, but that's not symmetric. And so it's not quite something we can use here. And I know that you had looked at Wasserstein and Kramer metrics, I believe, I might have things mixed up in my head a little bit, but when you were looking at one of your early algorithms and doing some of this post-talk analysis, you were like, okay, this is actually a contraction under one metric, but not another. And maybe this other metric is kind of more appropriate. Could you tell me just a little bit about that sort of early thought process and then how there was some of this back and forth between the algorithm working, doing this this theory, the post-talk analysis on the kind of convergence analysis and then how that drove some of the early algorithms you were developing. For sure. And to your point about the KL divergence. So exactly, we actually started by looking at the KL divergence. And so we had the distribution index state. And what we wanted to show was that when we applied this backup operation, we had a closer distribution. But the problem is that as soon as you have two distributions that don't have the same support, the KL divergence, it's not symmetric, but also it's going to be infinite. So infinite distances are really bad because they tell you nothing about whether you're close or far from something. I mean, basically, you're in trouble once you have infinity in your map. The early thought process was almost accidental, but as often in research was maybe also a bit in the zeitgeist, that other researchers at DeepMind knew about the Wasserstein distance. And it turns out, this, you know, doing some digging around the literature, we found other researchers who had used the Wasserstein distance to analyze similar algorithms. Actually, there's a very long line of research, very different from what from reinforcement learning, where people study the convergence, the runtime of algorithms like quicksort, using basically the same tools as we've been doing. So more on a more sort of much more abstract level. So this was the this was the start of our work. We found those papers and we needed it to write the papers. So then we anchored on those early papers and the Vashastai distance. The postdoc analysis came only later when a third co-author joined, Mark Rowland. And so uh, he came in, and uh, for context, the first three authors in the distributional paper were myself, Will Dabney, and our boss, Remy Munoz. And Will and I know a little bit of math, but Mark Rowland really knows a lot of math. <laughs> and so he came in and he said, you guys have no idea what you're doing. This is, this is, you know, like, this is embarrassing. But he's a nice guy, and so he said, here's how you should be doing it. And so he spent a bit of time and very rapidly had this new framework for these new distances uh, and showed that, indeed, there was a contraction mapping in that, in that distance. I see. Another pretty key aspect of this, I think, was that of, of representation learning and how that comes in here. And so you had this really wonderful blog post where you detailed some of these ideas and there are a couple of key insights that I wanted to extract from there and discuss. One was you noted that a, it seems that distribution RL becomes useful once combined with deep networks, which is really interesting. I think another was about looking at the representations themselves. So 
kind of a through line throughout a lot of all these comments is distributional RL is kind of giving us maybe a, a richer representation of what's going on in when we're when we're training an RL agent. But of course, what does richer actually mean? Why is that helpful? These are some really key questions. And I think that at some point you realized you could look at this optimality criterion for representations. And I think that the quotation I'm pulling here is it should minimize the approximate the approximation error over all achievable value functions. Could you comment on on that aspect of things a little bit? Yeah. So in fact, this question of what representations we should be learning in reinforcement learning remains a core part of my research today. And really comes back to this question of if you're a deep RL agent and you can let's keep things simple and say you can engage in play and and learn about your environment. So sample Data is not a question at this point. What should you learn about and how should you structure how you learn? And assuming, of course, finite capacity, right? So you can't just spell out, the again, the state of the universe. And so one early attempt that you're mentioning here with the, this is our work on the geometric perspective uh, on representations was to say, well, there's a certain sense in which you can be adversarial about these things. So you could say, I want to prepare myself for a world in which, in which I could be given an arbitrary reward function. Right, or it could be given an arbitrary value function to learn about. And so this is what this work tried to do. And as you're sort of alluding to, actually, we were trying to explain why distributional RL works so well with this work. One thing we found, although I really like this idea, it turns out that being adversarial is a bit too conservative. But I really like the line of work that, that's gone on with hindsight experience replay, for example. And we followed up with this work of what if we predict many different things? Right. If we were to engage and play with the world and learn to predict all kinds of different outcomes, for example, associating re- reward with arbitrary goals, could we learn a rich representation? And the answer is yes. What's interesting about distribution IRL in this story is it's almost orthogonal to how you define your reward function. It's not picking up on the rewards themselves because these are fixed, but it's picking up on how it's on the random structure of the environment. Right. So. So if fundamentally my system is random, it will come out in my predictions. And it might seem like, well, what kind of systems are really random? It turns out my belief is that most systems, as I said, are random. And this can be because, for example, you have other agents in the loop and they they look random. They might not actually be random, but from your perspective, they look random. Or, you know, it might be because you don't have enough information about the world in general and the world is partially observable. And same thing again. So predicting distributions is going to be a form of representation, like it's going to lead to good representations because it it captures this non-stationarity in the world, in a sense. That makes sense. I think another finding you had in this blog post you, you observe is that when you were sort of looking at the representations themselves, you did find that the space of value functions itself was highly structured. You mentioned it's a polytope, but with some unintuitive characteristics. Could you could you comment on that at all? Yeah. So basically, just to give some background on this, when in reinforcement learning, we'll have the reward function that is sort of defining the objective. And then we'll have different ways of behaving. So we'll have a policy that tells us how to map states to actions. And essentially, so the value function is for a fixed policy is a vector telling us what the expected return is for each state. Now, 
If you change the way of behaving, of course, you're going to get different kinds of rewards. So what we found in this paper is that if you imagine, first of all, plotting all the possible value functions, well, you can ask this question, what is that set, right? So that each of these is a vector, so it's a, it's a, it's a set of n-dimensional vectors where n is a number of states. And, well, at first glance, if you just ask this question, I think people wouldn't know what the shape is. So what is a polytope? Well, a polytope is a pretty specific object that has flat edges, and uh, what well, that means, it has corners. I mean, it has sort of convexity or convexity-like properties. Uh, in the case of the value polytope, and, and if people are curious, they can go look at some of the pictures. They'll make this clearer. In the case of the value polytope, it's not actually a convex polytope. What that means is that there can be two value functions that can be achieved by two different policies. But there's no way for me to achieve a middle ground. And this is surprising because I can always choose a policy and another policy, and I can always mix them together. But then when I look at the actual outcomes that I get, then, then, and I trace that curve, right? As I go from one policy to the next, then the, it's actually a curve. So it's not going to be a straight line through the value function space. In some sense, what that means is as we change the behavior, we get, we're spanning uh, the space of possible value function in a very special way. And what we did in this line of work is we said, well, a good representation should be able to approximate as much as possible all of these subject to some constraints. And maybe a really cool, maybe unappreciated fact is that a different way to think about these special value functions, so you could think of them as just varying the policy, but that's actually really hard. A different way you can think about finding the corners of that polytope is by essentially defining how much you care about a state. So you could say, I'm going to try to get to the goal, but I'm not allowed to go through the middle. I have to go on the sides. That defines a new kind of value function. And the way we do this is by assigning weights basically for these different things. And there's a very surprising geometric connection where once you change your objective away from maximizing reward to maximize reward in some states and minimize it in other states, then you get for free these other corners of the polytope. Okay, so this is, I mean, the result is sort of deep in, in convex analysis, but it's very exciting that it comes out in reinforcement learning. Yeah, I think another aspect of this that you mentioned rather explicitly earlier and seems like a valuable insight is is the connection between exploration and curiosity and developing these representations. And one connection that sticks out in my mind that I'm curious if you've investigated or thought about is I've spoken to at least one researcher who's kind of deep into this space of evolutionary algorithms and looking at developing agents that just exhibit, quote unquote, interesting behavior, which is a very deep question itself, what interesting actually means and how you go about generating that interestingness. But Joel Lehman, who I spoke to a while back, had this very cool paper in which he was sort of developing, you know, and sort of bootstrapping these agents that were navigating terrains and very complex ways called evolution through large models. And I'm curious if if that's a connection that you or any of your colleagues have kind of explored in terms of how does curiosity, how does interestingness kind of help us map the space of value functions, develop good representations of them? Uh, overall, I love Joel's work. And I think this is such an exciting avenue for research. Although I haven't worked in the, in the space of evolutionary behavior myself, a lot of my research 
is essentially comes down to play, right? How how do agents interact with their environment in free form to learn good representations? And, you know, it's hard to learn about something if you don't try things out, right? I mean, the classic machine learning approach is somebody hands you a big data set, but what if you don't have the data set? You have to go get the data yourself. So the representation learning part of my work is really saying, if I give you the data, how would you structure it in a way that's useful later? But there's really this, this other aspect to the question, which is, how do you get the data? And for me, an obvious answer is, well, we need to have ways of incentivizing our agents to go out and try things out. And the problem is, this is maybe where reward isn't enough, is that if a priori all I know is what success is, right? Like often people will say the ultimate reward for, for biological agent is reproduction. Well, that's not a very deep reward to go by, to you know go about your daily day-to-day life and learn to be uh, a human. And so instead, what do we do? Well, from a young age, we engage in play. We learn about the world by trying things out. We do things we shouldn't be doing, and we discover the laws of physics. Cats do this. Dogs do this. Uh, I was reading earlier today that fish engage in play and reptiles engage in play. So pretty much every animal, every intelligent animal, engages in some form of behavior that has no direct reward, right? Where the reward is in the play and there's no food, uh, there's no reproduction, whatnot. So in that sense, I think this is where our work meets Joel's, which is to say, how do we create this interesting behavior out of thin air, Right. Because we don't want random behavior. We don't want this agent to thrash around, but we want to say, on its own, the agent decides to go in Montezuma's Revenge, go check out the next room, right? And and uh, there's actually, uh, this is work we did six years ago now where we were designing these um, intrinsic rewards to get our agents to go and explore the world in Atari games. And one of my favorite moments of this project is when we realized that the agent liked to go into a room where there's absolutely nothing to do, but it would just go and check it out. And it would just, on the way to collect the main reward, it liked to go there because it was very surprising and very different. And it had learned to do this. It was almost like uh, enjoying itself on the way to actual success. Yeah, yeah. I, I do like the framing of this all as play. And I think that's really kind of the unifying thought here. So... Moving forward from some of this theory and connections, you've mentioned your work with Loon a couple of times. And so this is really a a fascinating case where you were applying deep reinforcement learning in, in the real world and finding some really interesting things about how it works. Could you tell me a little bit about the the origin of this project, what the challenge you were solving is, and then how you went about it? For sure. Actually, so the... the... The impetus behind working with Loon for me was after joining Google Brain in 2017. I was, this might seem surprising, but I was very keen to do RL research with something else than the arcade learning environment. And, uh, you know, at Brain, we have this exciting opportunity to work with all kinds of different systems and all kinds of different uh, groups. And so, in fact, the way that the collaboration came about is I had a colleague in, uh, in Mountain View who recommended that I meet with the CTO of Lou and Sal Candido and we should have a chat. And they were looking to use reinforcement learning in their systems and and they wanted to talk to some experts. And we had a chat and uh, I really liked the platform. And to me, this the, the platform they were, they were building, um, effectively, uh, these were stratospheric balloons that would fly about 20 kilometers high in the air and roam the earth for months or even uh, ideally, the goal would have, would have been 
years on it. And because the because these systems are pretty underactuated, there's a real need to apply reinforcement learning to get the most out of these systems, right? So so like unlike a plane where you you can fly it where you want, with the balloons, you're sort of dependent on the winds. You go up and down to catch the winds to go in the right direction. So just from an RL perspective, this was a, a perfect fit for deep RL. And Nobody could write down a closed form solution that would control the balloon as well as RL. So this was, you know, the starting point was, wow, this is an exciting platform. And the team on the other, on the other end was also an incredibly strong team. So that's how we got the collaboration started. Yeah. So it, it does seem like there is really kind of a clear overlap here. And if I remember correctly, this was another case where you were using distributional RL in particular to kind of look at the problem. Can you tell me about some of the approaches that came in here and maybe about how distributional RL in particular played a role? Yeah, so because this was a fairly big system, so just to give some context, the one other appeal of the platform was that Loon had developed a simulator, which meant we could train in simulation as opposed to having to train on real, only real balloon data. Um, and so we actually used it, this, this platform. The, the final controller that we deployed in, in production was trained on something like 1.3 million flights. Uh, this is the 40-day controller. But so there was enough technical challenge elsewhere in the project that we decided to keep things simpler. And by this, I mean, we said, we'll, we'll start with algorithms that we already knew how, how they worked and then building more pieces as need be. So the distributional RL part is in many ways the exception to that rule. So we use a fairly standard DQN setup. We did have a distributed training setup just to get enough samples to train this controller, we needed to use uh, 200 concurrent simulators, all basically simulating balloon flights, trial and error. But we put in distribution RL because we knew it so well and because we, we thought that it, just like everywhere else we'd seen it, it would bring us this extra edge of understanding the world, understanding all this unaccounted for randomness. And it did. And so if you look at the distributions, it's in a nature paper. If you look at the distributions, you can tell that there's things in the simulator that cannot be resolved that are just purely random uh, or, or look random. Distributional RL allows us to see these things and then have a better representation. The bottom line performance is about just 1% difference, but uh, a bit like how Magnus Carlsen uh, will be very close to all of the other very good chess players around him. It's very hard to know if that 1% is worth a lot or not, right? So my belief is that it is, but uh, the jury's still out on that. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So one just general curiosity is if there's been any any follow-up work, perhaps with Loon in particular, but then also other areas where perhaps you're you're exploring applying RL to the real world um, after after this case. Yeah, so we have some we have some uh, new ideas that we're looking in, just at, sort of at. Uh, in broad strokes, I'm, I'm very excited in general by the idea of applying reinforcement learning for physical, complex physical systems. And I think we're seeing more and more of this. Um, to me, the value proposition is, is really big because a little bit like ALE really scratched an itch when it came to RL benchmarking. Many physical systems, and I mean here, uh, you know, it could be industrial processes, it could be optimizing engines. So I know... Uh, I'm blanking out on who did this, but there was engine optimization was a project that I saw a few years ago or flying balloons or flying undirectorated devices. You know, these, the physical world will, will create this immense complexity. 
And the classic approach would be to model this immense complexity, but it's very difficult to do so. It's almost impossible. It's computationally uh, demanding. And so really one way to think about RL is to give up on modeling all this complexity and just learn how to behave, right? And, you know, distributional RL plays into the role of saying, well, model a little bit more and hopefully that helps us learn to behave better. So I'm pretty bullish on everything about RL for controlling physical systems. The other advantage of this, and we saw this with the work that DeepMind released on, on, uh, on controlling fusion reactors, is that we often can have a simulator of some kind of simulator. And if we can make the simulator better, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it gives us a good control law and it can be iterated on. So we sort of get around this question of where do we get the data from that we have to go crowdsource the data? That's pretty expensive. You know, do, are, there, are there ethical cons- concerns about the data? Well, if it's a physical simulator, about at least the simulation part is, is free of concerns. Yeah, I guess that's, that's an important thing to consider. It does seem like there are just many different areas where we can think about how the physical world is going to introduce some additional challenges for us to kind of force improvements in RL. I'd love to close out with more of of an advice question. So as somebody who has really impacted the world of RL in, in lots of profound ways, I think, I'd just love to hear your advice for somebody maybe not too different from, from me in terms of being at the start of their career or beginning a PhD, who is thinking about how do I choose a research topic or focus on something where I can really make an impact? What, what would you say to somebody who's thinking about those questions? There's a lot to say, I suppose. But maybe my, the, the two pieces of advice that I often give to my students, the first one is, Treat the research career like going to the gym. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a continuous improvement process. And I think we tend to forget this and tend to sort of just go for the biggest thing we can do and forget that we need to keep improving along the way. And eventually we'll be able to do the bigger thing, right? So that's one. And I think also understanding opportunities. And this is sometimes a mistake I've seen done by, you know, say, say, say more junior researchers, which is to say, have I even talked to the right people before I take on this problem, right? So understand who around you can help you accomplish this problem. And really, research never happens in isolation, right? All the work that, that we've talked about today, there's always been somebody smarter and better than me to help me through it. And as difficult as it can be to explain your ideas or expose your ideas to people when it's still half-formed, I think that's really the key to success is, is you've got to pitch and you've got to talk to people. And that also means having the right people around you. Now, Within those two constraints, I think then, then it really comes down to a question of what excites you, right? And, uh, and if, if the right people are around you, they'll tell you if it's exciting too, right? And are they excited by it? Will there be people who, you know, you, you can come to them and tell them, I did this thing and they're very excited. There'll always be people who won't be excited, but that's okay too. Yeah, I, I think that last part of excitement certainly is a through line that seems kind of apparent in, in anything people want to do. It's really a very long game. And I think that to be able to sustain a good amount of work for a long period of time over the course of a whole career, there has to be some some intrinsic motivation, some level of play going on in there. For sure. For sure. That's a great way to put it. Well, um, Professor Velomar, you really are a singular figure in your field. And I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and speaking to me today. This um, this was really an honor. So so thank you. 
Thank you for this. This was a great interview. Thank you. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.